If you would take your Bibles and turn to chapter 4 of Ephesians, we'll be looking at verses 20 through 21. Let's go before the Lord and ask him to illuminate by his spirit his very word to us. Lord, you have promised in your word that you come through ordained men to speak. You come to speak to your people. Lord, would you come this morning and speak to us? Would you use this jar of clay to speak the very words of Christ to your people? May they feed upon bread, the bread of your word, and may they find it satisfying, filling, enabling, comforting. We ask, Lord, that you would make it so this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you please stand with me as we give honor to God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. As we begin to look at this passage, I want to take a few moments for us to kind of consider it, to think about it, to begin to wrap our hands around where Paul has been and where he's going. The immediate place we just were and what we've looked at is the fact that Paul has said, Do not walk like the Gentiles. And we've tried to work through the last couple of weeks what exactly that looks like, what exactly is going on there. And I want to say to you, as with every passage of Scripture, that there is no way possible to cover every aspect and dynamic and plumb every depth of this rich text. I keep reminding you that Lloyd-Jones stayed in Ephesians for 12 years, and there's still probably more sermons that could, he could have preached. So the reality is, is that as we look into this text this week, and then I will not be here next week, but the following week we'll come back and look at this along with the rest of what Paul is saying in this section here. I want us to begin to get a complete comprehensive understanding that Paul has a very clear understanding in his own self that when we learn Christ, somehow that leads to an obedient life. That he sees the fact that an understanding of the gospel leads you to live a life that is holy and right. But it's very clear for us to get this in our heads, that it is the gospel that leads to obedience. And for some of us, that's just counterintuitive. How does knowing that God became a man, born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, went to a cross that he didn't deserve to go to, in my place, died, was there for three days and three nights, rose again from the dead, 
appeared to many witnesses, and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, how does that help me obey? And see, it really is right there that as long as you ask that question, how does that help me obey, that at some point you never really obey. It is the gospel and a full understanding of what it is for you that you begin to grasp what obedience to God is and how you can actually obey Him. Now you might say to me, well, Dennis, wait a minute. You know, Paul's got all these things coming after about, you know, honoring your parents and loving your wife and submitting to your husband and not being a liar and not be, but see, what we need to understand is, is that that is coming, but Paul says to these people, but that's not the way, living like the Gentiles, that you learned Christ, which is something they have already done, and now he's saying, in light of what you learned, this is how you ought to live, live like what you are. I'm kind of letting you know where we're going. But Paul is not looking towards those ethical implications. He's saying, you learned Christ a certain way. You learned Him. And it is imperative that we understand that if you don't get that part right, no matter how hard you try and no matter how good you look to everyone else in this room, you are not obeying Christ. Outward conformity does not equal obedience to God. We must come to terms with that. I'm not suggesting that we're not supposed to be outwardly conformed to Christ. I'm saying that you can do outward things that look like obedience, but you cannot obey Christ without understanding the mystery of the gospel. And that's Paul's premise. And I challenge you to read any one of his letters and come away with a different conclusion. Paul is thoroughly convinced that Christ saves me to the uttermost. From start to finish, my salvation is totally wrapped up in the person and work of Christ. And Christ is not insufficient in providing me with salvation. Which is why if at any point in justification or sanctification we start to say me, Instead of Christ in me, we fail to appreciate the teaching of the scriptures. And therefore, we fail at the very beginning of obedience. Where obedience needs to be started, we fail right there. And therefore, nothing we do that follows actually leads to obedience. Now, that's a big mouthful that we're now going to try and unpack. But that's what Paul's saying here. So let's begin to look and understand what Paul is saying to us. A logical question to ask is, what does learning Christ mean? What does it mean? Well, the first thing I want you to know is that there's no other place in the Greek New Testament that you will find this structure. It is unique to this particular place. And in fact, as I read through several commentators, they said there's nowhere in classical or Koine Greek that you can find this structure. It is an unusual structure and if you think about what's being said, it's not hard to figure it out. We, when we say we learn something, we lear usually mean we learn facts, we learn doctrine, we learn truth, we learn things. 
But the text here, Paul says, but this is not the way you learned Christ. He's talking about us learning a person. We learn about people. We don't learn people, at least not normally. But Paul has a very clear reason for doing this. Paul draws the connections between, if we remember, preaching Christ. And what did Paul say when he talked about the preaching of Christ? Paul tells us that when Christ is preached, Peter says when Christ is preached, it's actually Christ. What you're getting is Christ himself. It's not just information about him, although you must have that. It's not just doctrine. We need that. But it is the very life and person of Christ that is preached to you. And not only is that preached to you, but Christ comes and preaches it to you. Now, that's an astounding thing for us to comprehend, men and women, because quite frankly, there are days that I am preparing to preach to you and think, how in the world does this foibled, failing, frustrated man stand up and actually have the Holy One of Israel, my and your Savior, speak to you? And see, the reason why you can believe that is because the same Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead, the same Jesus who became incarnate by the Holy Spirit, the same Jesus who went to a cross and experienced complete dereliction from his Father, is the same Jesus at work in you and in me. Nothing, nothing is impossible for him. But the first thing we need to understand in learning Christ is that it is Christ himself. That's what it means to learn Christ. It is to learn him. It is to partake in his life. It is to really begin to comprehend what being united to him is and means. But also the fact that it is union. I am united to him. And I begin to bask in that wonder. And for many of us, I really believe this, men and women, we are truncated in our lives and in our faith and in our strength and in our courage precisely because we do not really own this truth, this theology, this reality that is ours in Christ. We talk about it, we swirl it around, we look at it like a pretty diamond on a ring. Look at all the facets, look at how wonderful, look at how amazing, look at how beautiful. But we never really embrace it and say, mine. This is mine. See, when I think about this ring, what do I think about? I think that that woman right over there who I know, I know her, I've learned her, I'm still learning her. She is every bit a part of me. So when I look at this ring, it's mine. She's mine. Well, how much more so the greater reality of what marriage points to? Christ and his church. I am my beloved's. My beloved is mine. I own it. It's everything to me. That's what learning Christ is. It is saying Christ is everything. I lack nothing because he's mine. 
John Stott has some things to say about this that may be helpful. He says, we learn Christ as the subject matter. And that's if you look here in this text, you see when Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him, we're, you've heard about him. He's the subject matter. We're taught in him. Christ is actually instructing. See, it says we're taught in him. He's the one doing the teaching. He's the one that's speaking to us. And then the final phrase where he says, as the truth is in Jesus, we learn that Jesus is the very environment where we learn. So he's the subject, he's the object of the teaching, he's doing the teaching himself, and he surrounds us and creates a context in which we learn. Now, I don't know how you explain that better than what Paul does. Basically what he's saying is, in, with, and under, Christ is all over you. Not the elements, for those of you that know that, that, that discussion, but the fact of us, Christ is in us. He's with us. He surrounds us. He is the context. We are called out and separated in ways that actually are meaningful and tangible, even though we can't see them. We do experience them. If you ever go, I feel loved and I can't explain it. If you've ever been reading a passage of scripture and somehow you just feel it in your very soul, you can't even explain it. It's just all in you. You begin to grasp what I'm saying here. Christ is alive and present in his word, in his people, and in his kingdom, which is pervading over this world. And we need to believe that. And so Stott is helping us to understand that in some ways. To learn Christ is to know him as the object of supreme love, as the only true source of all that is good, satisfying, and complete. Paul is reminding the Ephesians, ultimately what we're getting at here is our union life. This is, as I said before, what it means to be united to Christ. Christ is himself held out as the only means of being right with God. Many of us get that. We go, okay, there's no other way to be saved except by Jesus. And what we mean by that is that God says you're not guilty anymore. Your sins are forgiven. But part of learning Christ as well is this idea. Christ himself is held out as the only means of walking in holiness. We are dependent utterly on Christ. Thus, our union with him and our understanding of what this means is of the utmost importance. We're going to look at a few minutes at some verses, but I want you to begin to wrestle with this. Your sanctification is just as much dependent on Christ as your justification is. Don't ever get in your mind that somehow, okay, Jesus justified me, but now i got to get on the giddy-up horse and get myself sanctified. The reality is, is that the only power for salvation in its entirety, justification, sanctification, glorification, stems from Christ himself. He is the fountainhead and he is the goal. And Paul has been telling us that all the way through Ephesians. Learning Christ means that you really believe John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty comprehensive. I'm the way. You can't get there unless you're on me because I'm the way. I'm the truth. If you don't know me and about me and believe me, and I'm the life, you're a dead man without me. That sounds pretty comprehensive of our salvation. In John 15, 5, Jesus went on to say this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, the earlier part of that verse is amazing. That if you're connected to me as a branch is to the vine, then you will produce fruit. There's no question here that the goal, in part, is the fact that we be producing a fruitful life. God didn't save us to wither on the vine. He saved us so that we would be robust in our life of holiness and obedience. But you have to get the first things first. Else you will not really understand what it is that you are called to do and how to do it. Are there ways then, second point, you cannot learn Christ? Yes. And here's two of them. And I want to say this to you. During the time of the Reformation and shortly after, two camps arose. And this is what I'm about to talk about. So I just want to tell you that they arose. And in the 1600s, there was a full-blown debate. You had the antinomian camp who said Jesus paid it all. Jesus obeyed it all. Jesus saved it all. And therefore, we can do as we please. Now, there's a part of that that you want to say, he did do all of that. And somehow, that is a great relief of burden to me. But men and women, if we really understand gospel grace, the natural conclusion is not to say, Jesus, you saved me from hell, so now I'll act, go act like a son of hell. That is not a logical deduction. And Paul, right here and in other places, refutes that kind of thinking. That you would think that Christ saved you from the pit, and so you go wallow in it as thanks to him. There's no way to consider that. Romans 6 is emphatic. The Greek there is meganoite. Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? God forbid it. May it never be. We are people who need to understand that when Christ gets a hold of a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, their mindset is not to go back and run amok in the fields of destruction. But oftentimes they end up back there because they never really fully came to understand Christ and what he is for them. They never really got first things first. Now, the response to that was what is, was called at that time neonomianism. Basically, you've got all these antinomians out there running amok, so what do we need to do? Well, we need to get the gospel cleaned up, folks, because you see what the gospel's doing? The gospel's got people believing that they're really free, and look what they're doing with their freedom. It sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? Because I think that there's a letter that Paul writes to the Galatians where he says, do not use your freedom, which the gospel's given you, to do acts of unrighteousness. 
See, the problem with the Neonomians is what they decided to do was, we've got to put the clamps on freedom. And you surely can't preach the gospel as it's, it's as free. It's, Christ has done it all. He's paid it all. He's obeyed it all. You've got to quit saying things like that. Look at what people do with it. Now, it's interesting because this debate is raging full right now in 2007. And it was raging full in 1600. Anytime the gospel is preached, men and women, we should understand that Paul wrote and had to say, Meganoite, God forbid that you would think that because Christ has really done everything he's done for you, that you would then go out and use it for sin. Apparently, it's been going on ever since the gospel's been preached, but apparently, the only way you really preach an unadulterated gospel is to take the risk that people will be antinomian with it. The answer is not to create a neonomian response. Neonomian means new law. Antinomian means anti-law. Just for that help. I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 6, and I want to read a little bit of this, because I want you to see exactly what's happening in Paul's logic. Now, twice Paul's going to say, by no means, if you're reading an ESV, like I said, it actually translates, God forbid it. But let's read this section. I'm going to read from verse 1 of chapter 6 over to verse 14. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. There it is. I don't die to sin. I've died to sin. It's a past tense reality if I am a Christian. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. So what's the logical implication? If you become a Christian, you don't sit there and think about death. You have died to death. Christ has killed death for you. And the cause that leads to death, sin, and the wages which are produced by our sin, Christ has paid the penalty for it all. Now then, listen to what Paul's conclusion is. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members as to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, Paul's going to go on to say he's not despising the law. He's just saying the reality is is that the gospel grace actually does something the law cannot do. The law cannot empower you to obey. All it can do is show you the way, show you that you don't, and it can convict you of what you're not doing. It has no power to make you or enable you to obey. That is what you need grace for. That's what the gospel is all about. So what I want you to see there is is that in that passage, Paul refutes both antinomian error, that you can do whatever you want, but also neonomian. You don't return to the law and say, okay, the law now clamps people down so they don't do crazy things. He's actually saying, no, actually the gospel does that. And you need to understand the gospel. So then we can ask our third question, how do we then learn Christ? Paul, in verse 21, assumes the positive answer. He says, assuming, and what he's begging for is assuming that you've heard about Christ, that you've learned Christ, that you have been taught in him, that you know the truth is in Jesus. And obviously what he's saying is, assuming that, he means, of course this is true of you. Of course this is true of you. Of course this is the way you Ephesians have learned Christ. Walter Marshall, an early Puritan, wrote a book in the mid-1600s actually addressing those two topics I just, he wrote a book refuting both antinomians and neonomians with a book called The Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. For those of you who wonder where this is, it's interesting, the two names in the foreword of this, the guy who wrote this into more modern English, the two people in the modern era who have found this book most helpful to them and their understanding of sanctification are John Murray and Jack Miller. An interesting combination. Murray, in fact, gave this book to Jack Miller and said this is the best book on sanctification ever written, to which Miller then took it and began to work out his understanding of Galatians. Now, the irony of this, for those of you who don't know, is, is that right now, part of the debate of the antinomian debate and the neonomian debate is between the followers of Murray and the followers of Miller. Isn't that fascinating that these two men found that book which refuted antinomianism and neonomianism satisfying and their followers can't seem to get it into their own heads. It's tragic. It ought not be that way. That's not how we learn Christ. Marshall lays out four things essential to living godly, which the believer must have. Listen to what these four are. You must have a heart. Your heart has to be freely willing to live a godly life. He goes on to say, you must be the kind of person that when you read the law of God, you go, oh, how dear and sweet that is to me. That when Jesus says, do this, that you go, but of course I want to do that. That's my master. That's my Savior. That's my life. Do you understand the difference flavor than a neonomian who says, you need to do this? The neonomian always wants to say this. Of course Jesus saved you by his grace, 
but. And as soon as you say, but, you fail to understand the gospel. So if you're a person that's always adding that little conjunction in there, Jesus did it all, but you fail to understand the gospel. See, what Paul's saying is a natural implication of understanding the gospel is you will obey. If you know Christ, you will start to do what Christ calls you to do. It cannot not happen. Now, can you fight against it? Of course you can. Indwelling sin is there. Of course you stumble and fall. Of course you have different seasons. But the reality is, is that if you are in Christ, Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is growing in you. You cannot stop that. Go to Galatians 5 and read it. The implication is, is that if you're a believer, this is true in you. Maybe not to where most of us would like it to be. But it can't not be true of a true believer. That person is growing in Christ. Because Christ the head, as Paul's already told us, is feeding through the ligaments and joints of the body his people. And Christ doesn't fail. And when Christ feeds you, it's filling and sufficient to accomplish all that he has for us. See, what I want you to really see is, is that an antinomian lacks true faith, and a neonomian does too. They don't really believe that Jesus is able to make us what he's called us to be. And so the ultimate sin is not a sin of what you did or didn't do. The ultimate sin is a failure to believe what Christ has done and is for you. He also goes on to second point is you have to be assured that you are forgiven and reconciled to God. It always disturbs me when I listen to Christians who've been Christians for a long time say, you know, I, I love everything about the gospel story, but you know, there are other things that we could talk about. What are those other things? What could possibly be more important than talking about Jesus? What could be more satisfying than thinking about him? Explain that to me. Isn't that the whole point of the Bible? All of it points to me. How could we ever find that not satisfying? You have to be sure of a happy, eternal future with the Lord. And hasn't Paul said that? He said, look, our hope is in heaven. Christ is already gone. He's paved the way for us. Fix your eyes in heaven where Christ is. He calls us. The last thing he says is you have to have sufficient strength both to will and to do what God calls you to do. And here's the punchline of what Marshall has said. Because see, you hear all that and you go, well, great. So how do we get that? And this is what Marshall says. You have to receive it all from God. God has to give you a heart that's freely willing to live a godly life. God has to give you assurance that you are forgiven and reconciled to him. God has to make you aware of the reality that you are happy with the eternity that he has before you. And God has to convince you that his strength is sufficient. So if you're going to live a godly life, guess who has to do it? The person right there at the beginning of godly, God. If you're going to live a Christ-like life, who has to live it? In you. Christ. How much clearer can Paul be? It's in Christ in me. 
Me by myself does what? I pursue the flesh. But Christ in me pursues glory and delights to do all his Father's will. So much of sanctification is, as I've said in the past, praying John the Baptist's prayer. He must increase, and I need to decrease. And in fact, this is the irony of Jesus. Jesus says, the more you decrease, the more you find your true life and identity and purpose. Rather than you being depleted, you rather are built up and filled up because what you're pursuing is that which fills up and builds up Christ himself. That doesn't make sense to us in a world where if you don't blow your own horn, nobody listens to you. That doesn't make sense to us in a world that says it's the guy who gets up early and stays up late that gets ahead and gets the promotions and gets... You see, we live in a world that's counterintuitive to what Christ teaches us. But it's as you find him sufficient that you actually decrease and therefore find your life rather than losing it. I want you to turn to Colossians 2, 6, and 7 because this is the, if you read in a commentary, it'll tell you to look at these verses as the verses that correspond to what we're looking at in Ephesians. Listen to what Paul says here in Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, how did we receive him? That's not a rhetorical question. You can answer it. How did we receive Christ Jesus? I didn't hear you. By faith. Paul's already told us that in Ephesians. So listen to the logic Paul's using. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How do you walk in him? By faith. If you don't get that part, that the beginning of obedience is faith. It's believing and trusting and loving and delighting in all that Christ is for us and all that he's done for us. Paul goes on to say, this is what happens. Rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. There it is again, just as you were taught. This is what you were taught. Titus 2. Want to go there too? You may think I'm overburdening this. I really can't strongly enough show you that this is the teaching of the New Testament because there are so many people out there teaching things which lead you away from this. And this is what Paul says is imperative that you know and learn. Chapter 2, verse 11. Look at what Paul says. For the law of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Is that what your Bible says? What's it say? The grace, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What's grace doing? Teaching us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What did Marshall say? We were supposed to keep our eyes on the hope that's awaiting us. What does Paul say? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. You getting the feeling that Paul really thinks you need to understand this? Let's go on to chapter 3. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, there it is again. Paul, why don't you start telling us, lay the smack down. You keep talking about this gospel stuff, and you're talking about how we're supposed to obey. Listen to what he says. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now listen to what Paul says to Titus, who basically said, you go and train up the elders of the church. The saying is trustworthy, what he just said about Christ. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So there we've got the gospel. Now listen to what he says to avoid. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. For they are unprofitable and worthless. That is not this pastor saying that. That's the Apostle Paul called by Jesus Christ to teach us the words of life. We need to be people about the gospel because that's what the Bible is about. The point for us then to realize is we must both see that holiness depends completely on us seeing Christ as fully satisfying all that is required of us, assuring us of all that he is for us, and giving us all that is necessary to obey. When you think I can't, that's exactly where you need to say, but Christ, you can in me. Enable me to hear that hard word, that convicting word, that word that how in the world am I going to be able to forgive that person? How in the world am I going to be able to show hospitality to those kind of people? How in the world am I going to be able to care about that person? How in the world am I going to stop doing this horrible, unrighteous act? Because the one who heals lepers is able to heal you. Paul said, I can do all things, not some things, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So in conclusion, I finish with a question. Have you learned Christ? Is he for you, your only source of true belief 
true forgiveness, true contentment, true satisfaction, true delight. See, the degree that you find him so is the degree to which you will be growing in obedience. May God make it so in our midst, not only today, but until God comes to take us home. Amen.